Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I bring you an interview with Sarah Esther Maslin, the Brazil correspondent for The Economist, who is based in Sao Paulo. I'll say up front that while she is in Brazil now, we talk probably equally as much about El Salvador. That's where Sarah got her start as a journalist, and she continues to work on a book about El Salvador now. I learned a lot about El Salvador from the stories she recounts, even if they are unfortunately often about extreme violence. But without saying too much, I think you'll find a throughline of this episode is Sarah's fascination with violence, traumatic events, and how those can affect people and the society around them. Also, you'll remember that apart from being for journalists curious about their peers, a big aim of this podcast is to help give journalists just starting out some idea of how others have done it before them. I think if you're a young journalist, there's a lot you can learn from many of the points Sarah hits in the interview. She does an internship and does some writing in college to get a bit of a base. She meets with editors at various publications before she goes abroad. She chooses a country where publications generally don't have a full-time correspondent. She finds a way to get there, not initially through journalism per se, but oftentimes the important thing is going there and then figuring out the journalism later. Once in El Salvador, she really tries to integrate with local journalists. She stays open to opportunities, and once she gets her first couple of freelance jobs, she follows it where it leads. In this case, she rides the wave all the way to The Economist. This is really a textbook case of how to become a foreign correspondent without waiting for some big publication to send you abroad. One last note, I'll be posting some bonus content tomorrow in which Sarah talks a bit more about how The Economist works. It's along the lines of the bonus content I posted from my interview with Jonah Kessel, the director of cinematography at The New York Times. It's some stuff that may be a little bit more inside baseball, in this case stuff like what she thinks about The Economist not having bylines. But if you're a journalist or just curious like me, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. So look for that to drop tomorrow, Monday. That's it. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Sarah Esther Maslin, Brazil correspondent at The Economist. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To warm up a little bit, if you could just set the scene for us with where you are, both the physical space around you and geographically, what time it is, and a little bit about what the past week of your work has been like. Right. So I am sitting in my office in Sao Paulo. I was lucky enough to get to visit my family in Wisconsin over the holidays, and I got back about a week ago. It's Saturday early evening, and I am looking out the window at a bunch of buildings and some trees. And this past week was hectic. Most weeks are hectic. This week was a kind of typically hectic week for The Economist, where I was taking part in an international briefing. And a briefing is kind of a longer story that we do at the beginning of the publication. Often it's a cover story. This one was supposed to be a cover story. And then craziness in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday booted us off the cover. But this was a story that uh, several colleagues and I were doing about vaccines and the scramble of different countries, both rich countries and poor countries and sort of middle-income countries like Brazil to get enough vaccines to supply for their populations. And Brazil led the story 
because it is sort of an interesting microcosm of a lot of different issues that countries are facing right now. So this week was a lot of talking to people here in Brazil, epidemiologists and health secretaries in various states and other people involved in that scramble to try to figure out what had happened here in Brazil. It was sort of tragic and fascinating because Brazil had really a lot of ingredients to be ahead in the vaccine scramble. It both has really strong science institutions and it's not as poor of a country as some of these others that are finding themselves now in the back of the line. And it had a whole bunch of phase three trials going on from early on in the pandemic. So nonetheless, you know, we still don't have a vaccine here in Brazil. There are a couple who have submitted for emergency approval, but mostly because of the president Jair Bolsonaro's anti-vax, anti-science, anti-coronavirus attitude, Brazil has found itself waiting. And so the story was trying to explain all of that and how it relates to the same sorts of issues in other countries. And it's a very typical economist story because we tend to be very good when we are able to look at something that's happening in a lot of different countries at once. And so this was a story that I was writing along with five or six or seven different colleagues. And we were working on it and editing it and updating it sort of down to the wire at the same time that everything was happening in Washington, D.C. Cool. Um, it was bumped from the cover, but is the piece came out already or can, can people find it or when does it come out? Yep. It came out on Thursday. It's still the briefing. It's just sometimes when news overtakes the briefing, which is usually the biggest story in the issue, that news then takes over the cover. So we had both this vaccine piece and a very long and thoughtful piece on what was happening in DC and a couple of the things in the US section. And that ended up being the image that went on the cover was one of these protesters seated at, I think it was the desk of either Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell. It was a picture of one of these protesters seated at a desk in Washington. Gotcha. And yeah, I know, I know that feeling. I had a piece that was supposed to come out on Thursday that I'd been working on for a couple months. And luckily, this happened on Wednesday and not on Thursday. It ended up getting pushed. It'll run next week instead. But yeah, you can't control these things. Right. And it's sort of brilliant in this day and age to be working for a print publication still. It feels like something from another era. And I feel very lucky to get to contribute to something that I receive in physical form every week. But it also means that there are times when things have to get cut down drastically or something that was supposed to be featured in a certain prominent way and the print issue gets bumped to a less prominent way. And that, I think, is partly because we are still doing this weekly print edition, even though at the same time things are happening in real time, often right in the middle of our somewhat slow production schedule. Right. But still, once a week is pretty pretty quick for a lot of magazines, I would say. Yeah, Okay, great. Um, that gives us some sense of what things have been like for you in the past few days. 
And yeah, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast was, first of all, I feel like I know a lot of correspondents in Brazil via their work and via Twitter, and we might interact there or exchange messages. But honestly, I haven't met most people like in person, like unless they come to Brasilia frequently. So I wanted to have you on for that reason, but also because I heard you were from Wisconsin. So for the next part, it's about giving people an idea of how you got to this position of being the economist correspondent in Brazil. So we're going to go way, way back, I guess, to Wisconsin. If you could just tell me where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like in your family, and if you showed any early signs of interest in journalism. Well, Jake, I'm going to break your heart here. <laughs> I'm actually, I was born in California and I spent the first 10 years of my life in Berkeley, California, and we then moved to Madison, Wisconsin. But I think both of them were kind of equal parts of my childhood. So California was great. I went to a sort of hippie school in Berkeley. We had an all school sing every Friday. But it also was, I guess, probably more so than the public schools that I then went to in Wisconsin. It was really interested in exposing us to cultures around the world. And the curriculum was very unique and probably a little weird in that it really did give us a well-rounded education globally. And that was California. We lived in this log cabin on a hill up in the hills of Berkeley and spent a lot of time outside. Let's see, my mom is a journalist. She comes from a kind of family of journalists and oh. the family is actually from Chicago. Some of my relatives way back were crime reporters in Chicago in, I don't know, the uh, mid 1900s. Wow. And then my mother's dad was also a journalist. He wrote for all sorts of publications, starting with trade magazines, and then worked his way up to working for Newsweek, and then eventually spent most of his career as an editor for Newsweek, and then National Wildlife, and ultimately Smithsonian. And my dad is a political consultant. And so, I mean, I guess looking at that background, you would think it makes sense that I've ended up as a journalist. Although I have to say that I was very much not thinking about that when I was growing up. I spent most of my childhood and teenage years wanting to be an actress. And when we moved to Wisconsin to be closer to my mom's family, I did a ton of theater. And Madison is also a university town and had a real vibrant cultural life. And so I spent a lot of time in the local, both community theater companies and small professional theater companies doing plays. And I loved it. But at the same time, I guess I also thinking back, I always had an interest in other countries. I always had an interest in writing. And I sometimes tell people that when I was eight or nine years old, I had an entire shelf of books about the Holocaust, because as a really <laughs> young girl, I got totally fascinated by it, which seems really grim. But then in middle school, I became obsessed with Stalin and then spent some time in El Salvador with a Spanish teacher when I was 12. And then El Salvador had a really drawn out and bloody and violent civil war in the 1980s. And I was fascinated by that. And so I look back at these things that interest me as a kid. And I think there's something somewhat strange about a kid with a pretty happy life 
being fascinated by these very sad and violent histories. But I think there was something to me that was fascinating about that. And I remember reading in particular these young adult books. And these are really popular when I was young. And it seems now that teenagers read more dystopian or superhero books. But when I was a kid, these historical fiction novels were a big deal. So I remember reading a lot of books that were fiction about a kid who was roughly my age living during the Holocaust or living during the Vietnam War. And I found it really interesting to you know, contemplate what those experiences were like. And I think that sort of stuck with me. I had a chance to travel internationally a few times growing up, this trip to El Salvador, which planted a really important seed in that later on, I ended up going back and starting my career in some of the very same places in El Salvador that I'd spent a couple months as a teenager. And so even though I spent most of my free time doing theater productions when I was a teenager, I think also it kind of makes sense thinking about what I was really interested in starting at a young age that I ended up doing journalism later on. Cool. And yeah, I won't hold it against you that you weren't born in Wisconsin. I, I think that's a pretty good chunk of time in formative years, 10 to 18. I've never really gotten used to winter, though. Uh, uh, and I think that this is a huge advantage to me in living in Latin America is that there is not cold. El Salvador is right around the tropics. Much of Brazil is really warm. And even here in Sao Paulo, it can get chilly, but never so chilly that you have to put gloves on. And I'm perfectly okay with that. <laughs> uh, so did you go to University of Wisconsin or what happens next? And where, when do you kind of give up on theater, I guess? Yeah, I went to, I don't know, maybe I'll still become an actress, Jake. How do you know? <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, yeah. So I went to Yale and I picked Yale because it has a very good theater program and it also has very good academics. And I was a really serious student at the same time. And I wasn't completely convinced that I wanted to be an actress, although I knew that I wanted to keep doing it. So I went to Yale because I thought that it would give me options, which it really did. And I mean, I think giving up theater, frankly, was a combination of finding myself no longer a big fish in a small pond, which I was to some extent in Madison. Mm -hmm. And suddenly at Yale, there were so many talented actors and directors. And I acted in some stuff, I directed in some stuff, but it wasn't as clear to me as it seemed to some of my peers that this was the one and only thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And sure. I was also getting really interested in some other things. And I was loving a lot of the classes that I was taking and jumped around a lot. I was a philosophy major for a little while. And ultimately, I became a history major because I realized looking at the classes that I'd taken that it was the major that made the most sense. And I think it was my sophomore year, sort of second half of my sophomore year, I was taking some writing classes and thought that I really wanted to do something with creative writing and <laughs> was resisting journalism, mostly because my mom had been a journalist. And uh. it's very typical for a mother-daughter relationship that you've try as hard as you can not to resemble your mother in any way. And so perhaps I would have embraced it sooner. But I realized, I guess, that really a story fell into my lap, which is that I had 
spent the previous summer in Croatia and Bosnia studying history of the region and the genocide in Bosnia and how the region had been trying to deal with it ever since. And you can see a theme recurring here. And that when I was a kid too, I was always interested in these questions of mass violence and how people and societies try to pick up the pieces and recover from this. And then I found myself in my second year at Yale and met one friend of mine who was Bosnian and as a very little girl had escaped the genocide there with her family. And then through a class, I met a girl from Afghanistan who had fled Afghanistan in the early 2000s. And then I also was introduced at a party to a young woman from Rwanda who had spent six or seven years with her older sister walking around Africa, having fled alone as children, the Rwandan genocide. And I thought that these three stories and the fact that all three of them were at Yale in one way or another, trying to figure out what this past meant to them and in some ways studying the same conflicts that they'd been through. And I found that really interesting and pitched a story to the magazine at Yale. It was called the Yale Daily News magazine. And I think that was the first time I tried to do journalism. And it was really interesting. And I had a really great editor who was a year older than me and is now a fantastic politics reporter at BuzzFeed. And she really taught me a lot. And I kind of got hooked after that. That's great. Did you keep doing journalism then through your senior year? And did it become by the time you graduated, your idea of what you were going to do? Yeah. So I did. And I did it in an interesting way, because I did kind of bits and pieces of a lot of things that in the long run have really helped me. But at the time, I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. And so I just tried to get my feet wet in a bunch of different ways and was really kind of stressed that none of them were what I should be doing. And, I, and so, for example, I did some stories for the Yale Daily newspaper. I went and covered some protests when Trayvon Martin was killed. I wrote a couple other stories for them. And then at the same time, I was eventually editing that magazine that I had written for. And then I took, Yale has a really fantastic creative nonfiction program where they have some standard journalism classes, but then they also have classes that teach you how to do long form, more magazine style journalism. And you read so many amazing authors like John McPhee and Alma Guillermo Prieto and just all of these authors that have come to be really dear to me. And I took some of these classes and started thinking about that kind of journalism that is really spending months on something and crafting a narrative. And then I was also really getting sort of fascinated by El Salvador. Before my senior year, I went to this village in El Salvador where there had been a horrific massacre in 1981, where the army went to an area of the country that was controlled by the rebel guerrilla leftist troops. And they went into a town that was a completely civilian town, but where they assumed that the local population was supporting the guerrillas by giving them food, etc., and they killed about a thousand people over the course of three days. And this was the biggest 
massacre in modern day history in Latin America and it was covered up and the U.S. was at the time funding the Salvadoran army and the U.S. cover it up. And, and then after the war in the 90s, they did some exhumations and found out that it had happened and it had been mostly women and children who had been killed. And then they passed a blanket amnesty law that left the rest of the skeletons under the ground and any possibility of justice was closed. So I read about this. There was a brilliant article published in The New Yorker in the mid-90s about this and got fascinated with the idea of this town and really wondering what had happened since. It was around 2013 or 2014 when I went for the first time. And so I designed a project for my senior history thesis and went to the town and spent a lot of time both in the archives trying to figure out the way that the history had been told in El Salvador over time and not told and silenced. And then also I was really curious about how the people living in this town, what their relationship to this tragedy that had happened to their family members and their ancestors, how that would, like affected people. And I started going door to door the summer before my senior year. And my thesis ended up being about historical memory and how a society or a village remembers something that happened to them and how that informs the way that this society or this village functions in the present day. And after writing this thesis, I was still, I mean, I had so many questions that I pitched a project to spend my first year out of Yale working on a book about this town. And Yale has some really generous postgraduate fellowships. So I ended up getting a fellowship to go spend the first year out of college in El Salvador in this village starting to try to turn what had started as a history thesis into a sort of more journalistic or narrative nonfiction book. Cool, cool. Yeah, I think I saw somewhere that you're still working on this book. Is that correct? Yeah, so the, the plan, you asked whether whether I started seeing myself as a journalist in college. And the plan was that I would do this book within the first couple of years out of Yale and that I would both tell this story that has become so important to me and that I think is a really important story for the world because how people deal with trauma is a universal thing. This could be Iraq, Afghanistan, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. It's just applicable to so many different contexts. And Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I'll do this book and then that will be my springboard for a journalism career. And Rightly so. I think if I had succeeded in getting it done and that had been my sole focus during those first couple of years, I think it would have then served as a good platform to doing freelance work or a a job somewhere. But instead, I was living part-time in Argentina and part-time in El Salvador, partly because El Salvador is a really tough place to live. And at the time, it was the country with the highest murder rate in the world. And I didn't quite feel comfortable living there full-time, both safety-wise and also just, I don't know, because of the mental toll that living in a place that's so violent takes. So I was kind of going back and forth between there and, and Buenos Aires, where I still had friends. Sorry, when, just I, to give some sense of time scale, uh, like when did you graduate or when did you move to? I graduated in 2014. I think I first I went to El Salvador for six months and then I went to Buenos Aires. I had an apartment in Buenos Aires and because the poor Argentine economy then as now was really not faring very well. The exchange rate was so good that I was paying almost nothing for a a nice apartment in Buenos Aires. And I had friends in El Salvador that I'd made over the years. And so when I went to El Salvador, I would 
spend a little bit of time in the capital city with friends. And then I would go up into this village where I, there were a couple different places where I stayed when I lived there. But I don't know, it was, I guess, sort of a triangle between this village called El Mosote up in the mountains in El Salvador, San Salvador, and Buenos Aires, Argentina. And all of my fellowship money was going to airfare. Nothing else cost anything. Everything else was dirt cheap, and it was just airfare. And then eventually, the book project was going well, but I just kept going deeper and finding different new angles. And I got an agent who's really wonderful and has been very patient because that was what 2014 and now we're in 2020 and the end of the story surprise is the book is still a work in progress but mm-hmm. I basically did the book backwards and that I'd done a whole lot of reporting but I still haven't finished the proposal and sent it in and gotten a contract and written it and that's partly because of other things that have come up along the way and that I've decided to embrace rather than pushing away in order to get the book done. I guess the first is starting to freelance and the second is moving to El Salvador full time in order to keep freelancing. And then the third is very unexpectedly getting this call from The Economist and starting to work for them. Sure, sure. So, yeah, how did you you have this year long fellowship? And then, I mean, after that, it ends. And I imagine you turn to freelancing as a means to support yourself. And I ran out of money. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I ran out of money. <laughs> the book was still very important to me, but it also had led me to become interested in a lot of other things that were happening in El Salvador. So the book is about the long-term consequences of trauma on this village. And while I was reporting it, a few things happened. One of them was that they got rid of the amnesty law that had prevented any kind of justice and the government came in and started doing exhumations and in some ways that was a good thing because it was a step toward justice in other ways it ended up complicating things because they almost literally arrived at people's doors with shovels and said tomorrow we're going to exhume your ancestors and didn't bring psychologists along and didn't give people warning and so I was sort of there watching all of this and witnessing all of this and realizing that the story of the book was still very much ongoing. And I couldn't finish the book until we saw what happened at these exhumations and at the trial, which here we are five years later, and this trial is still ongoing. And then the other thing that happened is that the gang violence in El Salvador that had been getting consecutively worse the whole time that I was going there and eventually living there started to arrive in El Mosote, in this rural village. And it had started in the cities in the early 2000s and over time spread into different parts of the country and finally arrived at the doors of these same people who had seen their ancestors killed by the military were now seeing this new iteration of violence. And I wanted to understand how this new gang violence and the relationship between the gangs and the state in El Salvador was related to the violence of 30 years earlier and the lack of any kind of closure and of resolution and a sort of societal healing after the civil war. And I started trying to work this out in some art freelance articles. I also started stringing for the Washington Post. I think this was in early 2015. And I did my first story for The Economist on El Mosote and the exhumations that were happening there. 
this was all in 2015 and that led to a whole bunch of other freelance pieces and juggling this long-term book project and writing about the present-day violence. And of course, this was the time at the end of the Obama administration when one of the main stories in the U.S. was the arrival of tens of thousands of child migrants in Mexico, many of whom were fleeing the gangs in El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala. And so there was suddenly a real demand from editors for stories that explained where these children were coming from and why they were fleeing. Right. And I imagine, I mean, El Salvador is probably not hemorrhaging freelancers. Did you go in knowing how freelancing worked and that sort of thing? Or was it kind of just you sent some blind emails? Or how did you navigate it? That's exactly right, Jake. And and you've mentioned something that I sometimes think about how it actually was strategically perfect for me to be in El Salvador at the time, because the way that most bureaus work is they have someone based in Mexico and then someone based in Brazil and maybe someone based in Colombia. But Central America usually falls under the beat of the person living in Mexico. But Mexico is a big country and also Central America is tons of different countries. So they don't have time to be there all the time. So that's how I got my start is I got a call from the bureau chief of the Washington Post in Mexico City. And this was when Zika was breaking out and the Salvadoran health minister had said, our solution to Zika in El Salvador and the effects that we're seeing in newborn babies is that women just shouldn't get pregnant. And we're not going to change our laws on (laughs) abortion. El Salvador is a country where not only is abortion illegal, but actually they prosecute women who have had abortions or even miscarriages that they cast as abortions. And we're not going to make birth control more available, but basically just don't get pregnant. And that's fine. And so this was a big story and I helped out the post and their coverage. And that led to doing some other stuff for them. But yeah, it ended up being, I wasn't there because I thought that it was a good place to be strategically, but it ended up working well. When I first moved to El Salvador, like when I was sort of going back and forth between El Salvador and Argentina, I had done, I guess, two things that helped me later on. The first was right after I graduated from Yale, I did a three-month internship, a summer internship at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which is a a regional newspaper in Uh. Milwaukee. A fantastic paper that has won a bunch of Pulitzer Prizes and, like a lot of regional newspapers, has really gone through tons of budget cuts and is a shell of what it once was. But when I was there in 2014, it was still a really solid paper and I went because I knew that I was about to go off and be a freelancer in Latin America, and I was still really an inexperienced reporter, and I just wanted to get skills at reporting, and so having to make a call every day. And and my first week, they sent me out to this random town in southern Wisconsin where two bodies had been found in suitcases along the side of the road, and so I was covering very classic crime and city and cops. And so that was really, really, really useful. And that reporters and editors I learned from there were great. And then the other thing I did is I went to New York with, sounds crazy these days, with folders full of my, with of some of my clips from Yale and from the Journal Sentinel and my resume. And I think I even made a list of pitches, a two-sided piece of paper. And one side had pitches for El Salvador and the other side had pitches for Argentina. And I just using Google and I guess some contacts from Yale and from the Journal Sentinel, I knocked on doors and anyone who would 
have a meeting with me. I went and met with, I think I met with the New York Times travel editor and someone from the New Yorker and someone from Slate. And it was a real mix. And they all, I'm sure, thought I was very presumptuous, precocious, no real international reporting to my name at that point. But they were very kind and said, you know what? You know, no thanks for now, but let me know if you're ever out there and you've got a pitch. And I ended up writing for some of those editors. And I think I didn't meet in person with the foreign editor of the Washington Post, but I sent him that same kind of folder of things. And that might have helped later on when they needed a stringer. That's great. It's kind of, uh, well, I feel like a lot of journalists I've talked to, you know, you kind of just take a chance on doing this thing and hope it comes together. And in your case, it definitely did. So how long did you live in El Salvador? And I guess if there are any other highlights you haven't mentioned, and then how did you get to The Economist? So I ended up being in El Salvador, let's see, 2014 until 2017. So it was sort of three or four years. And the thing that I really wanted to mention was how important my Salvadoran colleagues were to me from the very beginning and through to the end. And our relationship changed over time. But as we talked about earlier, there really weren't a lot of freelancers from international media in El Salvador at the time. And when I got there, one of the first things I did was reached out to some of the journalists who I'd been reading in Salvadoran media outlets, including a website called El Faro, which was one of the very first, maybe the first digital newspaper in Latin America and made its name by doing really deep, riveting reporting on both Central American migrants traveling through Mexico and on the gang's and how they'd come about in El Salvador after having started actually in L.A. And then gang members who were deported from L.A. in the 80s and 90s started the gangs in El Salvador. And these reporters and a couple anthropologists and other Salvadorans who spent most of their life and their passion on trying to understand this violent but fascinating phenomenon started out as kind of sources of mine, I guess. And I think they were amused by me a little bit eye-rolling that I was just another reporter who had helicoptered in to write my sensational gang story and then I'd be gone. But over time, I stuck around and I think that they started to see that I wanted to stay and that I was living there and that I was going to the same press conferences that they were going to and waiting around at the prison doors for so-and-so to be released the same way that they were. And over time, they began to take me more seriously and became really good friends and, and colleagues. And I always tell freelancers and people who are going abroad for their first correspondent job to really make use of and be grateful for the local media. I mean, it's true here in Brazil as well. When I got here for The Economist, I did sort of the same thing. And it, as long as you're very humble and gracious, I found that local journalists are extremely generous with their time and will sit down with you and explain how something works and how they've done a particular story. And that was true in El Salvador. And that's been true here in Brazil as well. I don't know if you do you find that too. I mean, in Brazil, for sure. I mean, I got my start 
more or less in China where state media and controlled. So I would not say it was the case there. I mean, there are plenty of good journalists trying their best there, but their reporting is just not on the same level as the foreign reporting. But yeah, I was surprised when I came to Brazil, how open and how important it was to, you know, Brazilian journalists and how competitive and in the know they were. And certainly in Brasilia, you know, you see the same people were kind of on the same circuit, kind of get to know who's who and things like that. And so that was a very good change from being in China for me. Yeah, that's a a great part of working here. It's competitive, but there's also a real sense of solidarity. In El Salvador, for sure, there was competition between different very scrappy Salvadoran independent outlets and even between those outlets and occasionally me and some of my colleagues from the international media. But at the end of the day, we're all getting beers together and talking about whatever is happening. And I think maybe it's partly born out of how dysfunctional and sometimes tragic the government can be. And, you know, the feeling that we're all in this together to expose what's going on and try to make sense of it and make a difference, I think, is a bit of a stretch. Maybe because as journalists, you always want to make a difference. And at the end of the day, I guess that sometimes the most you can do is sort of document something for history. But I did feel like this is something that I've been so grateful for and has been so important to me. And right. And so you asked how I got to The Economist. I was working in El Salvador. I wrote for The Economist A handful of times, maybe five or six times over the course of a year or two. Some of the stories were really thorough and deep, fascinating stories. I did one piece on the economics of extortion in El Salvador and how the gangs managed to extort practically every business in the country from the woman selling tortillas on the corner to Coca-Cola and the major telephone companies and what that does for El Salvador's economy. And I was still very surprised when I was asked one day whether I would be interested in spending a few months in London for sort of a tryout for a foreign correspondent job with The Economist. And I was surprised because that kind of thing doesn't really happen these days. I figured that the way that I would become a journalist was by being a freelancer and that either you kind of go to a a small media outlet in the US, or I guess these days, even the kind of regional publication to national publication to foreign correspondent pathway is shaky. I guess I assume that I have to move to New York or LA or something before I could ever consider having a staff job. And I didn't want to spend the time doing that. I was just really eager to get out there. So I figured that freelancing, that would just be it for me. And I was okay with that. But this seemed like an absolutely amazing opportunity. And so I headed off to London in 2017, at the end of 2017, and spent a few months writing about Latin America, mostly from London. They sent me out to Latin America a couple times, once to Puerto Rico after the Hurricane Maria, and then once back to Central America. And then I was offered the Brazil job. Had you given Brazil much thought? I mean, had you been to had you been to Brazil before? Let's put it that way. Let's start there. I had never been to Brazil. I spoke no Portuguese. And I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to say it, but I really, (laughs) I didn't give Brazil much thought. I think for people who have approached Latin America through Spanish-speaking Latin America, and this is true even in the courses that I took at Yale and 
the things that I read as I was starting to become interested in journalism, Brazil is sort of a country apart. I wasn't particularly interested, but that was out of ignorance. So when I got this job offer, I was thrilled and really excited about it, but also a little bit terrified because I felt like I, after having spent six or seven years either in Argentina studying the history or in El Salvador reporting, and I, I kind of had, along the way ended up doing some consulting work that required me to write regional stuff. And so I dipped into a whole bunch of different countries. And then suddenly the one country that I almost didn't know anything about was the one that I was about to go to work in was both really exciting and really scary. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I guess it was a little bit similar for me that I'd spent my whole life learning Chinese and thinking about China. And then I was like, oh, I, I'm, my wife is Brazilian. And I met her in China. And then I kind of got interested and started to learn things. But, you know, I did not have anywhere near the amount of preparation to move to Brazil that I had to move to China. And I mean, I didn't study Spanish or anything like that previously. So, you know, the first six months were kind of, uh, I spoke really messy Portuguese. Like I really had to rely a lot on my colleagues who were great and helped me a lot. But yeah, it was tough starting out. So yeah, how have you, how have you found things then in the last three years you've been here? Yeah, I thought that it was tough starting out as well. I came right at the kickoff to the presidential campaign that ended in the election of Bolsonaro. And I think an election is both a great way and a really hard way to start out a correspondent job. It's a great way because you're just forced to learn really quickly. You almost get a crash course in a different subject every week. One week, you are writing about the influence of WhatsApp on the election and you get a crash course in how social media works in Latin America. And the next week you're writing about the political parties and how Brazil has 30 different political parties and what that means. And Brazil had all these anti-corruption investigations going on at the same time. And one of the candidates was in jail. And so, you know, another week learn the past decade of history on that whole topic for a story that you're doing, I found it really exhilarating. And I learned a ton in those first six months. But I also found it really stressful, because I think what I realized later is that I had kind of eased my way into El Salvador in a way that I'd studied Latin America. And I had this fellowship that allowed me to basically be doing a version of freelance reporting in this village and in the capital for a year before ever publishing anything. Whereas here, in my very first week, I had a story and I think I had a little bit of not feeling like I was completely qualified to be writing about this country that I only just arrived in, even though I was doing everything I could to read about it and to speak to the people that could give me an authoritative understanding of what's happening and the different perspectives of what's happening. But it was hard. And I also think another thing, I mean, The Economist is a strange beast, and it was particularly challenging, I think, to write for a publication that is known for being an authoritative provider of analysis of what's happening and not just what's happening, but what should happen and what people should believe. And I mean, if you're familiar with The Economist and you read The Economist, you know that the voice is very unique. It's uniform. We don't have bylines. And The Economist is willing to be more opinionated, even in its news stories than a lot of publications. And so I was 
having long conversations with my editor, who's wonderful and who was a correspondent himself. And that helped a lot. But he would say, so you've told me all of this about what's happening. And what do you think? I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Or what do you think should happen? And I would try to answer. And sometimes he would then say, well, how does this law from the early 2000s, how is that playing out these days? And I would panic because I didn't know anything about this law. And he remembered because he'd been a correspondent here way back when, but then I'd have to kind of go back and ask people about this particular law from the early 2000s. And so it was, I wonder to what extent he was trying to push me or to what uh, to what extent he sort of, he was freaking out as much as I was freaking out, but I was definitely freaking out. <laughs> you might have said his name. This is the guy who wrote that book about Brazil. I read a book about Brazil by an economist correspondent, no, no, like this in my is preparation actually... to move here. It's not that guy? No. So our Latin America team includes the longtime Latin America editor, Michael Reed, who wrote a book on Brazil and a book on Latin America. And he's currently our Bayo columnist. So he writes this weekly column on Latin America. But my editor is another previous Brazil correspondent named Brooke Unger. And he's my editor. Gotcha. Cool. Well, it's still cool you get to work with Michael Reed. I thought that book was super handy and getting prepared and got into a lot of nitty gritty that a lot of the other stuff I read didn't, you know, very holistic. I found it really useful as well. Yeah, there were a handful of books that I read very quickly before coming here, and that was one of them. Uh, okay, you had gotten to Brazil. It was kind of a trial by fire getting in just as elections were starting to take off. I will say I showed up in exactly 2017 as well in July. And I was just very grateful for a few months of Tamer just to kind of figure out the ropes before, you know, things have been pretty nonstop since Bolsonaro has been elected. And I look back and like, uh, it seems like relatively speaking, like it was a more tranquil time, even if things heated up close to the election. My first week was the truckers strike here uh, in Brazil, when groups of lorry drivers, as we call them in the British Economist, started barricading the highways and refusing to deliver their goods because of an increase in fuel prices. And Bolsonaro sort of identified with them. And it was, I felt like the first time when some people started taking him seriously, although a lot of others didn't take him seriously until pretty late in the campaign. Yeah, I remember well the trucker strike. That would have been a couple months in for me. I had to drive from Sao. I went to Sao Paulo and I had to drive out to Impi. And I remember it being very iffy along the highway. And like this was right before I became a vegetarian. So I remember going to McDonald's and they were like, we have one sandwich because all the uh, <laughs> supply lines are screwed up. That's wild. Um, That's wild. But uh, I thought it was great because there was no traffic in Sao Paulo. And I said, Everyone tells me that it's just miserable to get around in Sao Paulo, but this doesn't seem bad at all. And of course, it was because nobody was going anywhere because of the strike. Right. Yeah, it was a weird time that I had chosen to do my reporting trip there. But interesting. And so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about your work for The Economist. You are the only person in Brazil obviously, and it sounds like in South America. So you must write extremely broadly. I guess, how does that work in terms of what do you decide to focus on? Right. So I'm the only staff member in Central America, but we have a network of stringers in 
not every country, but in five or six of the more important countries in the region. And I realized that that's going to offend some people who are in one of the countries where we don't have a stringer. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you where they are. Um, but <laughs> sure. so we do have a network of stringers. So they both write stuff directly for my editor and occasionally will send files to me when we're doing a regional story, which has been really interesting to organize. And I've learned a lot from taking in files from different places and trying to combine them into something that's cohesive. But just here in Brazil, it is very different from what I did in El Salvador, because as a freelancer, I had, with the exception of the news stories, which I did every once in a while, I had as much time as I wanted and wrote only about the things that I was interested in or that I wanted to do. And here in Brazil, I cover absolutely everything. And I've gotten really interested in a lot of the things that I wouldn't have necessarily thought I was interested in before, like pensions reform, which took me some time to wrap my head around, but is incredibly important here in Brazil and was a big story in the first couple of years that I was here. And I also have learned economics through this job and through many, 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 many conversations with very patient Brazilian economists who have walked me through the ins and outs of how certain things work. But I cover everything. I cover the economic stories. I cover the political stories. I cover the environmental stories. I've spent a lot of time actually in the Amazon for the past couple of years. And that has been one of the most interesting and sometimes heartbreaking parts of the job as well. And Every once in a while, we get to do these, we call them jolly boxes, but they're <laughs> they're often a box or a shorter story in the section, and they tend to be a little bit lighter, and our readers love them because they balance out the more dense, economist, long stories about politics or economics, and I've done a few of those on why Brazilian surfers have become so dominant and other things of the sort. But the job has really forced me to... I guess, expand my range of things that I feel comfortable writing about and the kinds of people that I feel comfortable calling up and talking to. I definitely felt more comfortable at the beginning calling up someone from an NGO or even going out and doing interviews on the street. I felt really comfortable doing that and much more so than calling up an economist or an analyst. And I think for some journalists, it's the other way. We have lots of people at The Economist who weren't journalists to begin with. They were economists, so they were academics, and they feel very comfortable talking with fellow academics or economists and more nervous going out and doing that man-on-the-street reporting. But I think that's one of the things that makes us work well as an organization is that we have a bunch of different kinds of points of view. And during the coronavirus pandemic, we had even a couple science PhDs who are journalists on our team. And that combined with people who are experts in finance, and often those same people are all working on a story together. And it also makes for a really interesting job as a correspondent too, because you have to push yourself to understand these different niches of a country where you're covering everything. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So yeah, the next part is about stories. So I like to first ask, what is a story that got away, a story that you wanted to do but couldn't because couldn't get an editor interested, you, a reporting trip went badly, you couldn't get a critical source, any reason really? Does anything come to mind? One that, that I really think about a lot still, when I was living in El Salvador a couple years in, it was at a time when a sort of proxy war between the 
police and the gangs in El Salvador had really gotten to a point where it started becoming clear that the police were committing extrajudicial executions, where they were murdering gang members and then making it look like it had been a kind of a shootout. And there were a couple of cases in particular that colleagues of mine in El Salvador documented really carefully and showed that this was happening through forensic evidence and witness testimony. And during this period in El Salvador, I, through another story that I had worked on, was introduced to a young man, 18-year-old gang member who I met in the hospital where he had bullet wounds. And the story he told us that he had been along with a friend who had been working at a tomato farm that the gangs had set up a couple years earlier when they were trying this sort of truce with the government to cut back on the violence. He was working at the farm and the police came up and basically shoved him and a friend into the back of the pickup and drove them up to the top of a mountainous area away from any of the houses and knelt them down and shot both of them multiple times and drove away. And his friend died and he miraculously survived. And I met him the next day or a couple days later and his ear had been cut off by a bullet and he had another bullet through one of his shoulders and another bullet through his back. And I got to know him over the the next few months. And basically, I wanted to tell the story of what had happened to him. And, and then what happened afterwards, which was really interesting, he at the beginning was saying that he believed that this was a message from God that he had been spared, and he wanted to get out of the gang. And I got to know his sister and his mother, and they were really supportive of this. But he was also terrified because he knew that the police would figure out that he hadn't died, and he could tattle on them and get them in trouble. And he also had no money. And recovering from these injuries was really, really tough. And so over time, it was the gang that was giving the money for his mom and his sister to come to the hospital and see him. And it was the gang that was offering him protection when he eventually left the hospital uh, from the police. And so I wanted to tell this story, both of the injustice and illegality that was happening with the police and in shooting gang members, and also in the story of this young gang member who was trying to find a way out, but was finding that really hard. And it didn't happen, I think, because at the end of the day, because I believed really strongly in this guy's story, but I couldn't prove it. It was his word against the police's word. And I knew that I would need something other than his word to try to prove that what he was saying is really what had happened and that he had not been shot by a fellow gang member or something else. And He filed a case with the human rights office. And so there were things that I could have pulled together to try to tell the story. But at the end of the day, I felt like I needed someone from the police to tell me off the record that this is what happened. And I was scared to try to get that confirmation. And I didn't really have sources deep in the police at the time. And I did some interviews, but then also got a little freaked out at some of the reactions and There was a lot of stuff happening at the time. Later, we found out that there were like police that were following around and threatening some Salvadoran journalists who had been exposing these extrajudicial executions. And I think had I had an editor and I was in talks with a couple different big magazines about this story and a couple editors were interested but wanted me to do it on spec which means without getting paid ahead of time and without necessarily having an editor talking me through it. 
I guess the mistake, and I wanted to mention this too, is that very early on when I met this source, I mentioned it to the Washington Post bureau chief that I had worked with on a couple other stories. And he was really keen on doing this story and wanted us to do it together for the Washington Post. And I really regret not taking him up on that because I think as a older and more experienced reporter and with the resources of the Post, we could have done a really good job with it. And most importantly, gotten the story out and I wanted to do it on my own and I was independent and it had come from my source. And I think that that was a time that I really learned that sometimes it is best to do something with someone else and like share the glory because at the end of the day, the story never got done. Yeah, that's a that's a huge bummer. It's tough. It is definitely the type of thing like in that situation, I can go to my editor and we'll talk it through and figure it out. And the publication is the one who sets the line as far as like how much proof do you need or not it can be difficult to exactly. make those calls. And on I just your own. didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know how to make those calls or what I needed. And I didn't know, you know, I was driving out by myself in my beat up car to meet with these gang members. And I was comfortable with that. And then at a certain point, the government really started cracking down and doing raids. And so then suddenly, I was a little bit more nervous about going out and doing this gang reporting. And so there were all sorts of times when it could have been helpful to have someone to talk things through. And so if I could do it again, I would have taken this reporter in Mexico City's offer to do it together. Right. Okay. Well, I guess then to move on to a high note, if we could move on and talk about a story that you're proud of and just tell us the process you went through from getting the idea, reporting it out, writing it and publication and and a reaction. One of the stories I'm most proud of is a story I did in El Salvador a year or two before I left, which started with a bunch of reports in local media of prisoners who were dying in holding cells which are just horrible places in El Salvador. They're about the size of a small bathroom or the bed of a pickup truck, I think is what I ended up going with in this story. And technically, you're only supposed to hold people in these cells for 72 hours, but often people end up there for weeks or months because the prisons are so packed that they have just gotten to the state of total dysfunction. And so this information about people dying in the prisons came at a time when there was like a state of emergency in the prisons, which because the government said that the gang violence had gotten so bad because information was going in and out and guards were sneaking in cell phones and the gang members in the prisons were using these cell phones to plan murders, all of which is true. But rather than reforming the prison system, they just locked everything down for what ended up being years And so these prisoners were overcrowded and not getting care. And so I went to one particular holding cell where a number of prisoners had died over the course of, I think it was five or six over the course of six months. And I was chatting with a guard and the guard said, well, you know, one of these guys, he wasn't even supposed to be here. He was just here for a mistake because he had the same name as the person who was supposed to be locked up. And that to me sounded kind of incredible. And sure enough, when I found his family and spoke to his family and started getting some of the documents and looking at the documents, it became pretty quickly really clear that the person who had been arrested and who had died in this holding cell had the exact same name, Jorge Alberto Martinez Chavez, 
as um, you know most wanted gang member, but that was where the similarities ended. They were eight years apart. They lived in different parts of the country. The gang member had tattoos all over his body, and this guy didn't. And he worked as a bus dispatcher and had two children and said he was innocent from the very beginning. And the police and then the prosecutors and then the judge all just ignored these blatant differences between him and the suspect. And so the story was really piecing together where everything had gone wrong, what had happened in the computer system and in the record keeping system, and then why these various individuals who could have spotted this problem just ignored it. And it ended up going on the front page of the Washington Post. And one of the things that the editor said to me early on was, this is all horrible, but we need to make this not just a story about El Salvador, but one about the U.S. as well. And at the time, the U.S. was giving quite a lot of money to El Salvador to try to reform their justice system and make their policing more forensic and less just strictly throw people in prisons and put more police officers in the street. And this was like a pretty clear case that those efforts were not bearing fruit yet. That's a pretty incredible story. I read it earlier today. And I was just curious if most of those granular details came from the court documents or how you were able to so minutely describe what it was like being in this prison cell. Well, I went to the prison cell as well. So they call these cells Bartolinas in El Salvador. And in some cases, to get to them, you have to go into a building. And in other cases, it's kind of like an open jail cell. Like it's almost like open onto the street. And so I think there's one part in the story where it says family members drop off food. They can glimpse their loved ones inside. And that was what this small town cell was like, is that when I showed up, you know, alone in my car and I parked my car and I went over and I didn't call ahead time. I didn't try and get official permission from the prison agency or anything because I knew that, you know, because of the scandal that all these people were dying, they weren't letting anyone go in. So I just went and sort of chatted up the guards and eventually they let me go in and stand near the cells and talk to some of the guys that were in there and just see what it looked like. The picture that we ran is from several years earlier in a different cell, but it pretty accurately describes what it's like. It's just people packed like animals into this teeny tiny cell with hammocks crisscrossed where they sleep and no bathroom or anything except for a little hole in the ground. And it's absolutely horrible place. But going there allowed me to tell it with that kind of detail. And then yes, it was reconstructing from court documents. And I also spent a lot of time speaking to the public defender who was assigned to defend this guy. And frankly, I think these public defenders have dozens, if not hundreds of cases. He didn't completely understand what was going on at the time. He probably did his best, but he started to unpiece and unravel everything after his client had died and he was trying to get the family some justice. Yeah, a tough story to report from the sound of it. But now that we know your background, it's definitely one that makes sense that you would be telling after, you know, going all the way back to these kind of stories of violence that have interested you. When I was rereading the story, Last night, I was remembering how tiny little details, things that went into one sentence or half a sentence were days or weeks of work. In the end, they couldn't quite determine the cause of death. And I remember I really wanted to nail that down. And I spoke to the forensic who had done the autopsy and other forensics and got all sorts of documents. But in the end, they couldn't really figure it out. And I basically felt a little bit like I was, I don't know, like doing work that 
like the prosecutor should have done or the National Human Rights Office should have done or like this this was work that the state of El Salvador in some capacity should have done and sort of wasn't doing, which I guess is really the point of the story is that a journalist was able to put all of the pieces together. And I mean, I think anyone could have done it. I just spent tons of time on it. There's no real secret except to really just spend a lot of time on it. But the government, no one else was able to do that for him. And that was really sad. And his family, they were really welcoming to me. And they answered my questions and provided the information that I asked for. But I don't think they didn't feel at the end of the day that like knowing the truth about everything that had happened was really any sort of solace to them. They'd been failed by their country and by the government and having a journalist poking around didn't make much of a difference to them. And that really stuck with me as well. Yeah, sometimes you can sort of maybe like I made a difference with some Washington Post readers who didn't understand the gravity of what was going on, but not with the family that went through this, like to them, the damage had been done. Right. I was just going to say there's that quote right at the end about them seeing it as more important if it prevents it happening to other people, then it's not going to bring them any sort of closure, really. Um, Okay. So then I guess we'll move on to the lightning round, which is faster paced questions. Do you feel ready? Sure. So first up is what is a must read publication that you look at almost every day? And I mean more for work. I get the two big national newspapers, Folha de Sao Paulo and Estado de Sao Paulo delivered in physical form to my door every day. And I sometimes read them almost cover to cover when I'm procrastinating or have the time. And sometimes I'm only able to glance at the headlines on the front page and maybe a couple stories that are relevant to whatever I'm working on that week. But I think the most important thing for me is to read the Brazilian media. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the media is very, very good here. And like, uh, if you read those two, you won't miss too much if you're looking at those ones. They cover it very, very well. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch? It can be any medium just for fun. So something that doesn't have to do with your job, but is journalistic in nature. We get the New Yorker and the Atlantic, and they stopped for several months during the pandemic. So that was a minor annoyance that meant that we couldn't read those. But I really like reading things in print. I know that I'm like one of the last holdouts and I have to get used to reading online because who knows how long that these things will even exist in print. But those two, The New Yorker and The Atlantic, happen to be among the few that will deliver to Brazil. So they're on my short list. Sure. Let's see. Then what is the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you have consumed recently, a journalistic piece, and it cannot be from your own publication? I was just totally floored by the work that Ed Yong did for The Atlantic over the entirety of the pandemic, but maybe the piece that I want to mention, and I don't really know to what extent this piece went around the journalistic world or the whole world, but this is a piece that he wrote in 2018 that was called something like the U.S. is not prepared for the next pandemic. And he started the piece in Congo 
in an area that had lost tons of people to an Ebola outbreak in 1995. And then at one point, he's looking at a monkey, a dead monkey that's like hanging from a stall where they're selling exotic foods. And he goes through the history of epidemics and all the different ways in which countries have gotten better prepared, but also all of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities and why the U.S. isn't prepared for a pandemic. And he wrote this in 2018. It was just uncanny reading it. I read it, I think, in March, and then I read it again relatively recently, having had all these months of pandemic. And I just found it really striking how he was able to foresee so many of the things that we would be going through and the weaknesses within the American system, a lot of which are due to Trump, but not all of which are due to Trump. And then Ed Young just did, I mean, every couple of months, he came out with this long and, and thoughtful article about a different kind of aspect of the pandemic. And they always felt both really timely for the particular moment and the things that the world was going through at the time, but also timeless in that these pieces that he wrote will kind of go down as snapshots of history in these moments in their thoroughness and thoughtfulness. Yeah, Ed Young is great. Also conscientious in his reporting, like he's written a great piece about tracking gender and race among his sources and things like that, that I read not too long ago that I think was from years ago, but I really thought was smart. His sources must love him too. I was thinking reading one of his pieces that he manages to get in so many quotes without it seeming like he's quoting people unnecessarily. At The Economist, we're very minimal on quotes. All the time, my editors are taking a quote, cutting the person's name out, and then just rephrasing it in Economist language. And I'm just really impressed at how Ed Yong is able to have us hear from so many different people and different perspectives in a way that sort of gets embedded. Okay. And then the next question is, is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't related to your work, but interests you a lot? I love the outdoors and I have a sort of alternate career where I have a job that I'm spending most of my time in the outdoors, disconnected from the internet and the news cycle. And maybe I'm a mountain guide or a ranger or something to that effect, or even a writer living in a cabin somewhere. So often I find myself reading stories of people who have gone off the grid in one way or another, and getting really inspired by those stories, whether they're adventure stories about explorers, or stories of creative people who have decided to disconnect in order to be more productive, or just stories about nature and and people appreciating nature. I really like that kind of stuff. That's cool. And then is Twitter important to you? You're asking me this at perfect time. I went off Twitter for a couple weeks, yeah, basically a month around the holidays. And I'm back in Sao Paulo, I'm back working. And so I've logged back into Twitter. But I'm, it's miraculous. I'm finding that I'm not missing anything, even though I'm only going on once or twice a day as opposed to all the time. So I think the answer to your question is yes, in that I don't think I could get by without having a Twitter account, especially in Brazil, where a lot of the conversation about a certain policy or something someone has said happens on Twitter. And so it can be really useful to see what certain politicians or public figures or just groups of people, when you look at that trending bar, what they're saying about something. But I think that you can do that 
without checking it as often as I used to be. And I'm going to try to stay off it more from now on. About a year ago, I started going to Bolivia, and Bolivia has become part of my beat. I went once to cover the election last year, and then the election was disputed, and there ended up being protests and kind of a really chaotic year. And so I kept going back to Bolivia and have fallen in love with the country. And I found Twitter really useful for writing threads that get into the backstory of something, especially when it's something that not everyone is necessarily paying attention to, which at one point people really weren't paying attention to the fact that much of Bolivia was blockaded in these protests. And I went and there weren't a lot of journalists there. And so I found in addition to the story that I wrote, Twitter was a really good place to put some thoughts and photos. And, you know, that got shared a lot that did something differently than the article that I wrote. So that was nice. And then if you had to trade places with any journalist living or dead, who would it be and why? So there's not necessarily anyone specific who comes to mind, but I would be really interested in being a photographer. And I guess if you want me to be a little more specific, for the massacre that I am writing a book about, one of the only ways that the world ended up knowing about it is because two text journalists and one photographer, a woman named Susan Mizellis, managed to sneak into this town just days after the massacre had been committed. And Susan's photos of the aftermath of that massacre were and continue to be some of the most important documentary evidence that it happened and how it happened. So maybe I'd go back in time to the Latin America you know, wars of in dictatorships of the 80s and trade places with Susan. Okay, so the next question is, What do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? I work my ass off and I'm very stubborn and persistent. (laughs) If If there's something that I want to find out, I think I'm fairly creative at how I get there. And that's something that I've learned over the years. The next question is, what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I mentioned earlier how... I tend to obsess over things. And I think obsession is a double-edged sword for a journalist. When you obsess over something, often that means that you stick to it and you continue to pursue it and think of different ways to go about it. And it can ultimately mean that a story is successful, but obsessing over things can also drive you crazy. And I think I would tell my younger self Not really necessarily to chill out a little, but to let things go when it's necessary to let things go, whether that's a particular interview that has gone badly that I am going over in my head over and over again, or the story that got away and I feel really guilty about, or even something that is a dead end and that I keep trying to revive rather than looking for potentially another story or another another outlet to pitch or, or so on and so forth. So I think just letting go of things. Yeah, that's definitely a good bit of advice. What is one thing most people don't know about you? I hate dogs and maybe I should be a little bit more diplomatic. I strongly dislike dogs and It is sort of an aversion that has gotten stronger over the years living in Latin America, where dog barking choruses have kept me up at night, 
very often, but I think it was born out of my mother's bad experience as a child with a dog that bit her, and then Americans' tendency to think of their dogs as second children and be totally not conscientious about the ways that they bark and slobber all over people and so on and so forth. So I am... I have to say, not just a cat person, but an anti-dog person. <laughs> I'm with you. I mean, we have a cat. I'm definitely a cat person, but it is a rare dog that I like. What is the most embarrassing thing that has happened to you while reporting a story? <laughs> it was a. It was an almost. It was an almost embarrassing moment. Last year, right before the presidential election in Bolivia, I was in La Paz for the first time, and I had been told about altitude sickness and kind of just brushed it off and thought that I go hiking and I'm in good shape and went gung-ho to my first day of interviews instead of staying home and taking it easy in the hotel. And then by the end of the first day, I was in full throttle of altitude sickness, throwing up and I will spare you the details, but the next day I had an interview in the morning with the vice president, Alvaro Garcia Linera, who's very well-known figure in Latin America. I went to his office. I was feeling not great, but managed to make it through the first hour or so of the interview and then started feeling really, really lousy. And I realized that I just wasn't going to be able to make it through the rest of this interview without throwing up all over him. And so I think I was probably about two minutes from vomiting on his shoes when I found a way to wrap it up and say, muchas gracias, vicepresidente, and gave him my hand and practically ran out of the room into the fancy bathroom inadvertently pushing a staffer out of the way to get in there. And anyway, that is when I almost vomited on the vice president's shoes. <laughs> wow. Wow. But yeah, no, that's no good. Altitude sickness can be pretty serious. And then what is the part of your day-to-day -day work that you enjoy the most? I love talking to people. I love speaking on the phone with people. I love, recently I went out during the lead up to municipal elections and spent a day in a gritty town near Rio de Janeiro uh, with mobs of people and candidates who were running for mayor and just talking to people about why they were supporting so-and-so. And I enjoy the reporting. And writing is really tough for me. I like having written, but I find writing really excruciating. So I'm happy to prolong the reporting bit by making several additional unnecessary phone calls. <laughs> yeah, I totally feel you on that. Let's see. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? So it's not my favorite. I don't know that I have a favorite, but one that was really enjoyable for me to read and then watch the movie version was All the President's Men, because I actually had Bob Woodward as a journalism professor for a semester when I was at Yale. And Most of his class was using bits and pieces of work by journalists who were not him, but we did read bits of his own work as well. And then watching the way that he was represented in a Hollywood film was really interesting. And it was a cool experience to have someone who was so kind of famed in the history of journalism 
as a professor, he's a very down-to-earth guy, and I found him really useful and helpful at learning some of the basics of journalism, which I didn't really know at the time. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, you'd be surprised, but people always want to talk about Spotlight. And actually, I don't get all the president's men that much. And the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I would be a professional rock climber. I was just listening to an interview with a woman named Emily Harrington, who just managed to climb a particular part of El Capitan. And I think she was the first woman to do it in less than 24 hours. But this interview with her, just she's just really down to earth and sounds like she has a really fun life where she goes around the world and climbs rocks and mountains. And I love climbing. And so that kind of life that combines climbing and the outdoors really appeals to me. That's a great answer. Cool. Yeah, this has been great. I guess I'll just wrap up by saying uh, thanks so much, Sarah, for taking all this time to talk to me. Thank you. It's been really fun talking to you. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Sarah Esther Maslin, Brazil correspondent at The Economist. I'll post links to some of Sarah's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, February 14th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.